the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and Happy New Year. Glad to be back in studio. Hope you had a great holiday season. I know I did, but it's always good to be back as well. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. James Blinn producing, Dave King engineering, Pedro Bartes producing and engineering in Seattle. And we're glad to be back and live in studio in this new year. Today, we'll be talking with the Senior Vice President for Strategic Initiatives and Special Counsel to Alliance Defending Freedom's President, Ryan Bangert. We'll talk about the Fifth Circuit Court's uh, rejection of an effort by the Biden administration to force ER doctors to perform elective abortions. We'll also talk with Jay Green, Senior Research Fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Center for Education Policy on the resignation and retention of Harvard President Gay. And finally, we'll talk with uh, Dr. Robert Jeffress. He is the uh, author of a hastily uh, put together book that was necessary for the times, Are We Living in the End Times, published by Baker Books, available to help us put into perspective, biblical perspective, events that we are witnessing today. He'll be joining us in the five o'clock hour. So I hope you can stick around uh, with us for that. But first, we'll take a look at some of the developing stories of the last, well, short period of time, as well as some uh, some thoughts on the year that was. Well, the U.S. national debt topped $34 trillion for the first time ever, crossing a critical milestone at a time when government spending is already under scrutiny. The national debt, which measures what the U.S. owes its creditors, that's what you and I owe as members and citizens of the U.S., hit $34 trillion as of Friday afternoon last week, according to new data published by the Treasury Department. By comparison, just four decades ago, the national debt hovered around $907 billion. We're beginning a new year, but our national debt remains on the same damaging and unsustainable path. Well, the historic debt level comes as Congress races to finalize critical funding bills in order to prevent a government shutdown. The national debt is expected to nearly double in size over the next three decades, according to the latest findings from the Congressional Budget Office. Office rather, at the end of 2022, the national debt grew to about 97, drew to about 97 percent of gross domestic product. Under current law, that figure is expected to skyrocket to 181 percent. At the end of 2053, a debt burden that will far exceed any previous level. Well, we might want to consider beware the Ides of January. House Speaker Mike Johnson, he faces some new government funding uh, showdowns. Uh, The question is, will he survive? John Gizzi, writing for Newsmax, points out that it's a make or break month for the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson. The low-key Louisiana Republicans' leadership skills will be put to the test as yet another government shutdown looms on January 19th. Let's see, today is the 3rd, the 19th is the deadline. Political observers will be watching closely to see if Johnson can avoid the ugly fate of his predecessor, Kevin McCarthy, and deliver a deal that um, mollifies conservatives in his caucus without resorting to uh, Democrats' votes 
to get across the finish line. McCarthy was ousted from his nine-month stint as Speaker in October after he angered fellow Republicans by passing a temporary continuing resolution to keep the federal government open that lacked any spending cuts and relied on Democrat support. When Johnson took over the gavel in late October, he faced another spending showdown and used the goodwill of his honeymoon period to push through an unusual two-step continuing resolution in early November to keep the government running. Well, step one extended funding at existing levels until the 19th of January for military construction and veterans affairs, rural development and the Food and Drug Administration, agriculture, energy and water development, transportation and housing and urban development. Step two funded the remainder of the government until February 2nd. There were no spending cuts or Medicare reforms favored by the House Republicans Freedom Caucus. Well, the vote was 336 to 95 with 209 Democrats and 127 Republicans voting to support it. 93 Republicans voted against it, more than voted against the last government funding bill in September that led to McCarthy's downfall. So what happens now? Well, it seems a foregone conclusion that something different will have to occur to keep the government running after January 19th. That means no more continuing resolutions and non-negotiable demand from the Freedom Caucus. Well, its chairman, Scott Perry, the Republican from Pennsylvania, made this clear when he declared his all-out opposition to Johnson's two-part November deal. Well, Johnson has already promised to end what critics call kick-the-can governance under his watch and to have the appropriations process proceed on the aggressive schedule so as not to uh, be backed into a last-minute shutdown drama. Well, that last-minute approach uh, was a major part of McCarthy's downfall. Representative Tim uh, Burchett, a Republican from Tennessee, told The Hill after the uh, November vote, Johnson has two weeks to pass it. His predecessor had since January, and then he jammed us up against the September 30th deadline. Well, to avoid a similar fate, Johnson must guide the House to pass the remaining appropriations bills well in advance of the January 19th and February 2nd deadlines and still leave time for conference negotiations with the Senate. But securing the needed Republican votes will almost certainly require the inclusion of major spending cuts. The current House has the closest division between the parties since 1930, 222 Republicans to 213 Democrats. To succeed without relying on Democrats' votes, Johnson's can't lose more than four of his GOP members. Under these circumstances, his fate as Speaker is uncertain. He's definitely a transitional figure, said one observer from the American Enterprise Institute, a seasoned observer of Congress. Uh, He cannot keep uh, doing continuing resolutions. Well, Johnson's friends in the Freedom Caucus have made it clear that they gave him a pass in November, but it remains a political fact. There is no plan that will pass muster with the U.S. Senate and meet their obligations on spending from the debt limit deal without relying on Democrats. So it will be a rather eventful start to the new year. Well, California voters will have the option to select former President Trump in the 2024 GOP presidential primary, despite calls from the state's lieutenant governor to remove him from the ballot. Secretary of State Shirley Weber certified the list of candidates Thursday night. The decision from the Golden State came hours after Maine's Secretary of State disqualified the GOP frontrunner from the ballot, a move that comes in the wake of a similar ruling from the Colorado Supreme Court. Activists in other states, such as, well, Oregon, have asked election officials to remove the former president from their state's primary ballots under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Efforts to remove him from the primary ballots in Minnesota and Michigan were unsuccessful. 
and the U.S. Supreme Court is expected to make a final decision on Trump's eligibility nationwide. Well, the longtime chair of the Iowa GOP says there's a chance for a record turnout when his state's caucuses on January 15th lead off the Republican presidential nominating calendar. The Republican record was set eight years ago when roughly 186,000 voters cast ballots in a wide open GOP caucus that was narrowly won by Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. I think there is a potential for a record turnout. Certainly, we're going to be well above 100,000. The Iowa Republican Party chair, Jeff Kaufman, emphasized in a recent interview. Kaufman, he pointed to what he characterized as a surge in new voters showing up at Republican presidential campaign events across the Hawkeye state. Again, going to be rather exhilarating start to the new year. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll continue to look at some of the headlines and then conversations with Ryan Bangart from um, the Alliance Defending Freedom on the Fifth Circuit Court's rejection of the Biden administration's attempt to force ER doctors to perform elective abortions. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You are listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the program, a conversation on an effort by the administration to force ER doctors to perform elective abortions. We'll also talk about the resignation and retention of Harvard President Gay. And we'll talk with Dr. Robert Jeffress about his new book, Are We Living in the End Times? All of that coming up on today's program. Well, Nikki Haley's Republican presidential campaign says they brought $24 million uh, in during the October-December fourth quarter of fundraising and another sign of the Republican presidential candidate's momentum in recent months. The Hall shared first with um, uh, on Wednesday with Fox News as more than double the $11 million raised in the third quarter and more than triple the $7.3 million brought in during the second quarter by the former two-term South Carolina governor, who later served as ambassador to the United Nations in former President Donald Trump's administration. With less than two weeks to go until the January 15th Iowa caucuses kick off the 2024 GOP presidential nominating calendar, the Haley campaign touted that they had the $14.5 million cash on hand in their coffers as of the beginning of the new year. Well, the new year began with Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gerskovich still languishing in the notorious Moscow prison of dubious espionage charges. Meanwhile, a colleague he's never met is focusing all his energies on securing his release. The Wall Street Journal deputized Washington Bureau Chief Paul Beckett to become an assistant editor last fall to concentrate solely on efforts to free Gerskovich, the 32-year-old American son of Soviet immigrants whose plight has attracted international attention and calls for his release. Beckett has a wealth of foreign coverage experience and government contacts, which made him a natural choice for the position. Russia seized Gerskovich last March while he was reporting in the fourth largest city of Russia and accused him of espionage. Gerskovich, the U.S. government and The Wall Street Journal all deny the spying charges and he's been declared wrongfully detained by the administration. He has been denied all his appeals and faces likely conviction in a closed court following a long prison sentence. Uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin addressed calls for the release of Gerskovich, as well as former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan at his annual press conference in Moscow last month. He suggested an agreement, in quotes, was possible to return them both, but said the American side must hear us and make an appropriate decision, one that suits the Russian side, end quote. Well, as it stands, the road to getting Evan Holm looks extremely complicated. Beckett acknowledged, and he wouldn't be surprised if his colleague is still incarcerated going into 2025. 
Well, starting with a raucous presidential election cycle that begins on January 15th in Iowa, expect a whirlwind in 2024. What seems likely to be an awful U.S. presidential election in November is only part of the story. Hyperventilation about uh, Donald Trump's supposedly authoritarian instincts and well-founded uh, concerns over the um, over corruption will motivate the major parties' bases. But don't lose sight of the global significance of this contest, given the security and economic threats and challenges confronting the winner. Well, elections all over the world for More voters than um, ever before will take place in 2024. Seventy other nations will also be voting. Well, there will be more than 70 elections in 2024 in countries that are home to around 4.2 billion people for the first time, more than half of the global population. But while there is more voting than ever, there is not necessarily more democracy. Many elections will be neither free nor fair. The entirety of the EU will go to the polls in June to elect a new European parliament, Opinion polls suggest it could be a banner day for protest parties, uh, particularly on the further right end of the spectrum, an electoral warning that might shake decision-making by frightened national governments of all ideological stripes. Don't forget Asia. India, the world's largest democracy, is likely to re-elect Narendra Modi as prime minister this spring. Japanese Prime Minister uh, Fumio Kashida may be less, luck, uh, le- less lucky, I should say. His Liberal Democratic Party is in the grip of the fundraising scandal. And although the next national election isn't until 2025, he could be ousted as prime minister in a party leadership vote later this year. Israeli forces raided foreign exchange and money transfer agencies in Ramallah and other cities in the occupied West Bank, seizing millions of dollars uh, suspected of being intended to fund the Islamic group Hamas, the military said. Times of Israel reported that 21 people were arrested overnight by Israeli forces in the West Bank in connection with the transfer of funds to recognized Palestinian terror organizations. During the course of the arrests in Ramallah, forces seized around uh, 10 million NIS uh, from nine branches of the five money exchange companies, a statement says. And Iran is currently enriching uranium up to 60 percent, which is reaching the 90 percent needed for weapons at its pilot fuel enrichment plant in the uh, Natanz complex and at the Fordow fuel enrichment plant as well. The director of general of the International Atomic Energy Agency said in the report that Iran had increased its product, his production of highly enriched uranium, reversing a previous uh, output reduction from mid 2023. And Speaker Johnson is pushing back on the president as the nation faces the worst border crisis in our nation's history, end quote. Well, they, in fact, took a trip, many House members, as many as 60, I believe, to the border earlier today. The statement released by Mexico noted that the delegations also discussed the benefits of regularizing the situation of Hispanic migrants who have been undocumented for several years and the DACA beneficiaries who are a vital part of the U.S. economy and society. At a time when America is experiencing the worst border crisis in our nation's history, it is unconscionable to hear the Biden administration's announcement that Secretaries Mayorkas and Blinken discussed with the president of Mexico amnesty for illegal immigrants, Johnson said in a post on X, responding to news of what was discussed during the meeting. In other news, December was supposed to see the fewest amount of border crossers. Instead, it was glass shattering numbers. 
a record-breaking amount of border crossings, uh, stormed the United States in December with 276,000 apprehensions, the highest ever on record. According to Customs and Border Protection sources, the December record came just one month after November's highest with nearly 250,000 border encounters. As 2023 uh, came to an end, Republicans were taking the opportunity to remind uh, President Joe Biden of what he has done to the nation's border and what he refuses to do. The U.S. Navy sank three ships tied to the Yemen-based Houthi militant uh, group after it targeted a Maersk container ship in the Red Sea this last week, leading to the massive shipping company to pause all operations in the region for two days. Helicopters aboard the USS Eisenhower were dispatched following emergency calls from the Maersk ship. U.S. military craft returned fire in self-defense, seeing three of the four small boats and killing the crews, the U.S. Central Command said in an official statement. The Iran-backed um, group has reportedly warned ships not to head toward Israel in what it claims is a show of solidarity with the Palestinians as Israel fights Hamas in the Gaza Strip following the deadly Hamas terrorist attack on Israeli soil in early October. Well, USA Boxing has adopted a transgender policy which will allow male boxers who transition to fight with female category in the female category in 2024. The governing body, which oversees America's amateur and Olympic-style boxing, will allow transgender athletes to compete under certain conditions. While boxers under the age of 18 must still compete as their birth gender, transgender fighters will be permitted to fight in the category of their choice. They must meet certain criteria, including declaring their new gender identity, completing gender reassignment surgery, and regular hormone testing. Both male and female transgender athletes must have undergone quarterly hormone testing and provided U.S. boxing with documentation of their hormone levels for the minimum of four years following surgery. Of course, um, that will not mitigate the significant advantage males have over females in this contact sport uh, where there could be serious bodily harm. Riley Gaines weighs in saying USA Boxing USA uh, to allow may, uh, allow men who merely say they're women to fight against women. Mark my words, it will take a woman getting killed before these misogynistic fools wake up. End quote. Israeli citizens are arming themselves after the October 7th attack. Israelis were shocked by the catastrophic failure of Israel's much-vaunted security forces to foresee the events of October 7th. That shock was compounded by the heart-wrenching, slow and ineffectual Israeli response in the first hours of the attack. Now tens of thousands of Israelis fearing October 7th could be repeated by Palestinians in the West Bank or mixed towns such as Jerusalem, Jaffa and Acre are arming themselves in an attempt to claim a modicum of control over their security. The number of gun license applications reached upwards of 3,000 a day in early December. And scenes of devastation emerged along Japan's west coast on Tuesday as rescuers raced to save residents trapped in the rubble of a 7.5 magnitude earthquake that triggered multiple aftershocks and killed dozens of people. The quake shook the Noto Peninsula in the central prefecture on the Monday afternoon, collapsing buildings, sparking fires and triggering tsunami alerts, uh, alerts rather as far away as eastern Russia. At least 57 people have been killed by the earthquake, according to Japanese public broadcaster NHK, citing officials from the um, prefecture. The five people were killed at Tokyo Haneda Airport on Tuesday when a Japanese airline jet collided with a Coast Guard plane on its way to provide earthquake relief.
And an Israeli drone strike killed a senior Hamas leader in Beirut. Um, It also killed four members of Hamas, including the terror group's deputy political leader, officials have confirmed. Up next, we'll talk with the senior vice president for strategic initiatives and special counsel to the Alliance Defending Freedoms president on the Fifth Circuit's uh, decision to reject an administration attempt to force ER doctors to perform elective abortions. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit ruled on Tuesday that the Biden administration cannot legally use federal law to force emergency room doctors to perform abortions. The Alliance Defending Freedom Attorneys, they represented the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the Christian Medical and Dental Association, alongside the state of Texas, asked the court to keep in place a lower court ruling halting the administration from employing the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act to force these doctors to provide elective abortions in emergency rooms. Well, here to give us a bit of that backstory is uh, Ryan Bangert. He is the Senior Vice President for Strategic Initiatives and Special Counsel to Alliance Defending Freedom's President. He joins us to talk about uh, this shenanigans that the appeals court has rejected. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Well, give us a little bit of this backstory. I know that um, following the decision the Supreme Court made, um, the uh, the president issued some guidance um, on uh, how to interpret this Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act. Give us a bit of the history. That's exactly right. There was a flurry of regulatory activity by the federal government right after the Dobbs decision. And all of it was aimed at one thing, and that was forcing a nationwide of abortion pills on the nation. And part of that was this change made to the Intala statute, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act. And what the administration did was it issued a guidance that required all emergency room physicians to provide abortions as a form of medical treatment uh, to women who qualified as suffering from an emergency medical condition. And then they monkeyed with the definition of emergency medical condition to expand it to include instances where a woman's life is not in jeopardy. So effectively what happened was the administration created a nationwide elective abortion mandate using a statute that never even mentioned the word abortion in its text. So the state of Texas, along with the two organizations I mentioned, the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the Christian Medical and Dental Association, challenged uh, that um, uh, interpretation by the administration in court. We did. We filed a lawsuit in Lubbock, Texas, where a number of our members are located, and brought this case to the federal court there. The federal court agreed with us and entered a ruling that barred the federal government from using this new interpretation that added an abortion requirement to the Impala statute. And then the federal government took that up on appeal to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers the states of Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled just days ago that the district court got it right, that the federal government cannot create out of whole cloth a new nationwide abortion mandate using a statute that was intended to prevent the practice of patient dumping, which is refusing care to uninsured patients at emergency medical rooms and emergency rooms across the country. Now, in making this decision, does that mean that only the areas where this uh, circuit court um, has jurisdiction 
uh, this is not uh, going to be applied as the administration had hoped? Or is this uh, an overturn of the misinterpretation by the administration? What? How do we understand this decision and what happens next? Question, and a very perceptive one. The court's ruling was limited to the state of Texas as well as to the members of our clients, APLOG and CNDA. So it only applies to the federal government if they seek to enforce this new rule within the state of Texas or against members of our clients. So it doesn't cover the whole country. Is there likely to be a future challenge in other um, areas where this court, um, this circuit doesn't cover, or is the a misinterpretation that the administration has imposed on the rest of the country likely to stand? Well, there already is a challenge pending right now in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers uh, the entire West Coast, including the state of Oregon. And that case involves a challenge brought by the federal government against laws in Idaho that restrict abortion. And so we're going to see that case is going to be argued at the end of January, Alliance Defending Freedom also as counsel in that case. So uh, we're going to see the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals take this issue up very, very soon. Well, it's it's heartening to hear that there are challenges pending, but it's also frustrating to consider that the administration can simply out of whole cloth create um, a law or a practice in emergency rooms that run count, counter to, are not mentioned or intended by the original um, uh, policy that, that we've referenced and expect that to stand. If there hadn't been a challenge, then this just would have been the policy. That's right. This is an act, egregious act of administrative lawmaking by the federal government using a statute. And again, I think it's important to note the Intala statute never mentions the word abortion. Mm-hmm. It doesn't talk about any abortion requirement anywhere in the statute. That was very important to the appeals court when it issued its ruling. It pointed out that the government couldn't point to the word abortion appearing anywhere in the statutory text. And yet the government created this abortion requirement through the use of linguistic tricks. And I think you said the word shenanigans. I think it's a very good word to describe it. Uh, using administrative shenanigans to create a law that was never passed by Congress, uh, completely out of whole cloth. Now, emergency room physicians can and do treat life-threatening conditions like ectopic pregnancies, but elective abortion is not life-saving and does not fall within what an emergency room physician who is, um, by his own conscience, uh, opposed to abortion. I just want to, cl- to clarify for those who are concerned that a woman who does have a life-threatening condition would not be subject to treatment in emergency rooms, given what the court has ruled. Absolutely correct. In fact, the Intala statute requires that emergency room physicians treat both a mother and the unborn child. And every state in the country, all 50 states in the United States, permit a termination of pregnancy if a woman's life is in jeopardy. So there's no question whatsoever, there's never an issue in this case, about whether or not emergency room physicians would be able to save the life of a mother when that life is threatened by a pregnancy. That was never part of this case. It was always about preventing the federal government from forcing emergency room physicians to violate their conscience, and in some cases violate state law, by providing elective abortions. Are you optimistic that ultimately this um, this policy that the administration attempted to impose will be rejected cross-country? I'm hopeful that the Ninth Circuit is going to get this right. 
and they're going to rule just like the Fifth Circuit did and find that what the federal government did with this guidance document is improper. Um, but even if even if the Ninth Circuit does not rule correctly, uh, there's still the possibility this could go to the U.S. Supreme Court. And I'm very hopeful that the U.S. Supreme Court, if the case is presented, uh, will take it up and will affirm what the Fifth Circuit did. And that would have nationwide effect. Yeah. I so appreciate the work that Alliance Defending Freedom does and want to make sure our listeners are aware of the service that you do provide all across the country and how they can connect with you to to learn more, to support the work and so on. Absolutely. We're so uh, such a pleasure to be on with you. And if your listeners want to learn more about Alliance Defending Freedom, they should visit our website, adflegal.org. That's A-D-F-L-E-G-A-L dot O-R-G to find out about this case and all the other cases that we're litigating all across the country right now. I know for my family, my household, we are supporters of Alliance Defending Freedom financially because we do believe in the work that you're doing. And it is even more critical and essential now than it has ever been, uh, given, again, the shenanigans that some of the uh, lawmakers, executive and so on, are attempting to foist on the American public, just assuming that we're not paying attention and they can get away with it. So I'm, I'm grateful. Well, it's our pleasure to serve, and thank you so much for your support and for having us on your show. Thank you so much. Again, Ryan uh, Ryan Bangert is a senior vice president um, of strategic initiatives and special counsel to Alliance Defending Freedom's president. We're talking about the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals rejection of the uh, administration's effort to uh, redefine what it means in this um, Uh, This ruling that that describes what is required in emergency rooms and to add to it what was never um, intended originally or for that matter at any point. The Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act to force doctors to provide elective abortions in emergency rooms. Just sort of an attempt at a workaround. But again, I'm grateful for ADF and others that um, work very hard to make sure that the law is followed as intended in this case and in so many others as well. All right, coming up, we're going to talk with Jay Green, Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation Center for Education Policy on the resignation and retention of Harvard's President Gay. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Harvard President Claudine Gay announced her resignation on Tuesday, culminating weeks of mounting pressure that started after she widely uh, her widely criticized appearance before Congress and escalated due to high profile reports of plagiarism in the embattled academics published work. She served as Harvard's president for six months and two days, and her resignation ends the shortest presidency in the university's history. She will return, however, to her position on the faculty. We're here to talk with us about that and the implications of her retention and now resignation, but retention, uh, is Jay Green. He is Senior Research Fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Center for Education Policy on that resignation and retention of Harvard President Gay. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's uh, not surprising that she finally resigned, but maybe you can walk our listeners who may not have followed this as closely as you and I have through this uh, whole series of events that led ultimately to her resignation that many thought should have been her release prior to her having to resign. Take us through what happened in her testimony and since. Well, it it actually goes back even before that, in that um, 
her appointment was unusual in that um, she was someone with uh, an amazingly thin academic record. She had only published 11 uh, journal articles and no books in her entire career. This is a fraction of what uh, prior presidents of Harvard had produced at the time of their appointment uh, and, uh, and only a tiny fraction of what peers at other universities uh, would have produced. So she was an odd choice. Um, and there, it appeared at the time and appears even today that she was selected for her symbolic value as a DEI commitment of the university as opposed to for her scholarly accomplishments. And then when faced with her first major challenge uh, following the October 7th attack by Hamas on Israeli uh, communities in the South uh, and civilians in the South, there were uh, there was an, an uprising of anti-Semitic activity on campus at Harvard, um, and Claudine Gay responded very weakly to that. Um, failed to denounce those anti-Semitic riots uh, on campus. Uh, failed to offer uh, clear support to the Jewish students and faculty on campus. Um, and this was similar to what was occurring at other institutions like MIT and Penn. And so the U.S. House um, had a committee hearing to bring those three university presidents to address um, problems with anti-Semitism at their universities. And all three of them, including Claudine Gay, did an, an amazingly poor job of trying to articulate um, what they were doing uh, and what they had done to protect Jewish students and faculty on campus. Yeah, you would have um, almost thought it was a, yeah. a comedic routine sitting there watching. But it wasn't so serious because it, the fact that they couldn't answer straightforward questions clearly, uh, it, it was just um, shocking. Right. They gave very lawyerly answers. And, um, you know, it's not that, that what they said was strictly false, um, but it showed a lack of caring um, uh, about uh, Jewish students on campus, and it seemed to be entirely designed to uh, avoid uh, lawsuits or blame. Um, so it was the kind of cautious bureaucratic behavior, uh, not caring or or uh, erudite behavior that we saw. And I mean, Claudine Gay, when asked this different versions of the question would simply repeat the same words over and over again as if she could say nothing but what she had been coached mm -hmm. to say. And so it seemed very alarming. And it then and then once that happened, then people really began to ask questions about how in the world she had become the president of, you know, one of the top universities in the country or what's thought to be one of the top universities in the country. And then as people started to look a little bit more into her, they discovered that there were problems with the very thin scholarship she did have. I mean, while she only had 11 articles, people began to discover that many of those articles, the majority of those articles, had instances of plagiarism in them. That is, whole sentences or whole paragraphs lifted from other people's uh, work uh, without proper attribution, either without quotation marks, uh, but with a citation, or sometimes with no quotation marks and no citation. Um, either way, it's plagiarism. Uh, there were up to 50 instances of this that, ha that have been alleged. Um, and I think as that began to pile up, the plagiarism charge plus her inaction 
uh, on the anti-Semitism problems began to convince people that they had simply picked the wrong person. Um, and that's why after only six months in office, she was she was forced out. There seems to be a campaign now to suggest that the reason that she was forced out is the fact that she's African-American and an AP went so far as to say the call plagiarism, the new conservative weapon after uh, her her scandal and her resignation. Now, this, as an African-American <laughs> yeah. woman, th- this is so insulting to me to suggest that, um, you know, this is just a matter of race and that we shouldn't be held to the same high standards. Your thoughts on how it's now being uh, characterized. She didn't seem to uh, embrace what the, the core reasons for her resignations were. She just simply deflected too well. You know, I've I've had to uh, face um, real pressure uh, because of these events. Right. Her resignation letter contained no contrition whatsoever. Um, she she admit, admitted to no wrongdoing uh, or shortcomings. Uh, and in fact, uh, she blamed uh, her critics of being racist. Um, uh, so it was not she didn't go out gracefully. Um, but the charge that that the questions about her were motivated by racism is ridiculous because people also questioned Liz McGill, the president of Penn, yes. and she was forced to resign um, uh, earlier. Um, in addition, you know, and th- that was w- only with respect to her um, uh, inadequate responses to anti-Semitism on campus. Um, Claudine Gay had that shortcoming plus uh, a widespread plagiarism, which Liz McGill did not have. But with respect to plagiarism, two other university presidents were removed in the last year, um, the one at Stanford and at the University of South Carolina, both for, pla- for plagiarism po- problems, um, and both were white men. And so removing university leaders for misbehavior, either academic misbehavior in the form of of uh, plagiarism or um, or bureaucratic shortcomings by failing to properly lead in fighting the uh, uh, anti-Semitism on campus. Those those shortcomings occur across race and sex um, and university presidents who are white and black and men and women have been removed for those reasons. And I think it's important to point out among her critics were African-American academics. So, again, that puts to to rest this this. She rose to her position in part by destroying the careers of much more accomplished black scholars at Harvard. In particular, she went after Roland Fryer and Ronald Sullivan, both very accomplished black scholars at Harvard. Um, And she destroyed both of their careers on trumped up DEI charges. That is, she accused them of uh, fostering hostile environments. Um, These kind of ambiguous charges are very hard to defend against. Um, and while they both kept their jobs, they both had their reputations and careers ruined. And she did that in part because they would have been in a position to call her out as mm-hmm. unqualified. Um, they would be qualified. They're, they're very account- accomplished scholars. She's much less accomplished. Yeah. And so her appointment um, was paved by destroying more accomplished black scholars. Yeah, we're just about out of time. But one of the points that uh, Heritage Foundation has uh, made is that her removal is an eff- essential first step, but it's not sufficient uh, as a solution for the numerous problems that put her in charge. The pernicious DEI bureaucracy remains in place. Your thoughts on whether or not this will have an, an impact on 
that um, pernicious a policy on uh, campuses across the country? I, look, I, I think the tide is beginning to turn. That's exactly right. It's the first step, but it was an important step in a long journey to dismantle EEI in higher education. And we have to do it because people are beginning to realize that this deviation from merit um, uh, leads to uh, bad university life. It leads to uh, failed leadership in com- combating anti-Semitism. It leads to weak academic inquiry. Um, and universities can adhere to their true mission of pursuing the truth best if they pay most attention to merit and not uh, racial and sexual identities. And that's why they need to dismantle DEI. And and this is a first step towards doing that. But it's going to take a long time to succeed. Yeah. Jay Green, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Again, Jay is Senior Research Fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Center for Education Policy. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. News up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. And I'm delighted that our guest for these next couple of segments is Dr. Robert Jeffress. His latest book, and he's written over 30 of them, Are We Living in the End Times? Well, end times prophecy doesn't need to be complicated or confusing, according to Dr. Jeffress. Uh, The words of Jesus remind Christians that even though we don't know the date when he will return, we need to have our finger on the pulse of what's happening morally, spiritually, and politically in our world. How do we do that, and what do we make of what we're witnessing and living through? Well, Dr. Jeffress joins us to talk about that. Dr. Jeffress is senior pastor of the 15,000-member First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, and is a Fox News contributor. His daily radio program, Pathway to Victory, is heard on more than a 1,000 stations nationwide, and his weekly television program is seen in 195 countries around the world. He's appeared on many media outlets, and as I mentioned, he's the author of uh, over 30 books, including the one we'll be talking about today, and Not All Roads Lead to Heaven. Dr. Jeffress, it is a delight to have you with us once again. Thanks so much for having me back, Georgine. You know, this is such a um, a timely issue. I suppose it, it has been since Jesus ascended into heaven. But for those of us living in the 21st century, witnessing what's happening in Israel, people who aren't necessarily believers are beginning to ask questions about, are we living in the end times? Is this what the Bible wrote about? Why do you think there's such a great and growing curiosity about uh, the end times, if you will, and confusion about what we are to expect? Georgine, it's interesting. Before the invasion by Hamas of Israel on October 7th, before that, a poll of Americans showed that 40% of Americans, now this is Christians and non-Christians alike, 40% of Americans believed we were living in the end times. I mean, why would an unbeliever believe that? Well, most people with any sense realize things cannot continue uh, spiraling downward as they are uh, forever. There's some end that is coming. History is moving towards some climactic moment. And then after October 7th, that just exacerbated the feeling that something feels different this time. And our ministry got to uh, just was flooded with questions from Christians and non-Christians alike about the end times. And uh, our team came and said, Pastor, you've got to produce something quickly. You know, Georgine, most books, trade books take anywhere from 
18 months to two years from inception to actual distribution. We did this book in four weeks and uh, it was a hyper speed, but I think it's a a great read. People say for those who are confused about the end times and uh, wonder what role Israel especially is playing in the end times. Now, this is not a fanatical book. I'm not setting any dates. Jesus said, no man knows the hour of the day of his return, but that means we ought to be ready at all times for his return. And this book is uh, aimed to help people prepare for the inevitable end times. Yeah, you raise an interesting point, and that is that Jesus has given us information about what to anticipate, but we shouldn't necessarily read the scriptures with a stopwatch, a calendar in the newspaper, anticipating that we'll be able to pinpoint this event means that's going to happen tomorrow. What does the Bible mean by the latter days or in times then? How are we to understand that uh, since the ascension of Jesus into heaven really started a new era in human history that will culminate in his return? Well, here's a spoiler alert right now. <laughs> uh, I'll answer the question, are we living in the end times? The short answer is no, not yet. But we are living in the period of time that you're referring to before the end times. Uh, The end times is a technical phrase that deals with, I believe, uh, the time after the rapture of the church, when Christians are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, the final seven years of earth's history will be filled with pain and conflict and the rule of the Antichrist. But those birth pains will give birth to the return of Jesus and the setting up of his kingdom. So since the rapture has not occurred, we're not living in the end times yet. We're living in what the Bible calls the last days. And as you referenced, Georgine, the last days really begin with the ascension of Christ. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years so far, but I believe an argument can be made for the fact that we are in the last of the last days because we see things lining up for the end times and especially the conflicts in the Middle East. And I think we're getting ready to enter that period of time sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about the role that Israel will play in the end times. We are witnessing yet another conflict there that is unique in, in various ways. But should we look to that as evidence that we are approaching and perhaps the end times are accelerating as we observe what's happening there and how the world is responding to the assault on Israel that began on the 7th of October? Well, you know, in one sense, there's been conflicts in the Middle East for 4,000 years, ever since the Abrahamic covenant and the fight between Isaac and Ishmael and who was the legitimate heir of the Abrahamic covenant. So it's been going on over there for a long time. But here's what I think makes things different this time. Two words, nuclear weapons. You know, when October 7th occurred and Hamas, sponsored by Iran, invaded Israel, I think the world saw, maybe for the first time, how it is that the final world conflict will take place in Israel. You know, for hundreds of years, even Bible scholars wondered about the uh, Revelation 16 and Revelation 19, the War of Armageddon. Why would the world forces descend on a country that's no bigger than the size of New Jersey? It didn't make any sense. But I think this recent uh, conflict has shown how a regional conflict could quickly escalate into a world war as nuclear powers like Iran, China, Russia, and so forth, and the United States chose to get involved in it. You raise another important question that you cover in the book, and that's 
how news events signal the end times. We're witnessing uh, the rise of of China, uh, its relationship with Russia and Iran. We're we're uh, thinking about what conflicts might emerge in the days ahead and where the United States fits into all of that. Uh, again, what news events signal the end times? either as we are currently witnessing them or can anticipate witnessing them at some point in the future? Well, I'm, I'm believing we're not going to be here for the final seven years. I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. But, uh, you know, it's interesting, Georgine, when the disciples asked Jesus on the Mount of Olives, Lord, what shall be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Jesus didn't dismiss that question and say, that's not your business. Mm -hmm. Just worry about developing your prayer life and share the gospel. No, he answered their question with the longest discourse, except for the Sermon on the Mount that he gave in Scripture. We call it the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. And he mentioned the signs that would indicate his return was uh, coming soon. He talked about uh, deception apostasy, international conflict, uh, uh, pestilences, diseases. Now, these things have been around for years, but Jesus said they will be like the birth pangs that a mother experiences before birth. When you see these things that have been around for a long time increase in frequency and in in intensity, you'll know that the end is getting near. And I think that's an interesting analogy. A pregnant mother may feel labor pains long before the birth comes about. But when those pains start increasing in frequency and intensity, she knows something big is about to happen. And Jesus said it will be the same way for the end times. We're talking with Dr. Jeffress. He is the author most recently of Are We Living in the End Times? To help clarify what the scriptures teach. We're going to continue our conversation and address some of those questions that are common among us in just a few moments. But we do need to take a quick break. I'm Georgine Rice. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Dr. Robert Jeffress. He is a prolific writer. He's a pastor. He's the host of radio program that's heard in over a thousand stations and heard in countries all of his television program all around the world. And most recently, he has written a, a piece for us. Um, are we living in the end times to help us better understand what the scriptures teach? And really, that's the focus. What does the Bible tell us? What does God want us to know as we anticipate the return of Christ so that we can faithfully <clears throat> live in a way that's honoring to him and um, th- that we are motivated to proclaim his great gospel? Well, one of the questions that um, you address in the book that uh, apparently is is uh, asked quite often is why has God delayed the end times? And that may not be the right way to, to put the question, but it seems like a long period of time since the, uh, uh, the first visit that we had from Christ and the anticipated return of Christ. Why so long a period of time? And has God, uh, delayed the, the end of time? Well, you know, in Second Peter 3, Peter says that in the last days, scoffers will come saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers uh, were, uh, uh, all things have remained just as they are. Translation, we've been waiting for 2,000 years for Jesus to come back. He hasn't come back yet. And I heard one pastor of a large denominational church said, and he's not coming back again. The second time he comes is when he comes in your heart. But Peter said, that's foolishness. 
Uh, he said, don't let this one fact escape your notice that with the Lord, the days is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. And then here's the key part. He said, the Lord is not slow about his promise, but he's patient toward you, not willing that any should perish. And there's the key. He has delayed, in a sense, his coming to give people a chance to repent. You know, um, Johnny Erickson has become a friend through the years. Your listeners are familiar with yes. her. When she was 17, she was in a diving accident and became a, a quadriplegic. And uh, uh, she's been a wheelchair more than 50 years. And somebody asked Johnny, don't you wish the Lord would heal you? And she <laughs> surprisingly responded, no. She said, for God to heal me means to put an end to suffering, he would have to put an end to sin. And if he put an end to sin, that would mean putting an end to sinners, and they would no longer have a chance to repent. She said, I'm willing to sit in this wheelchair a little bit longer if it means more people will come to know Christ. And I think that's the heart of God. There's only one reason he's delayed his coming from our point of view, so that we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ with as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. Now, you quoted a, a, a pastor a moment ago who suggested that Jesus is not returning in the way the scriptures clearly describe his return. It is a dramatic return that cannot be um, uh, mistaken or overlooked by anyone. But that said, for those who are discouraged, who do believe that this delay is evidence that, well, Christ is not going to return. What do you say to them? And when we look at, and you write about the Abrahamic covenant and God's faithfulness, what he said to Abraham in the beginning, and what we can anticipate in terms of uh, the truth of God's word, what what do you say as an assurance to those who, who wonder, when, O oh Lord, will you come? You know, uh, you made reference to the Abrahamic covenant, which is key to understanding God's plan for the future yes. in the role of Israel. And it was an unconditional covenant that God made with Abraham and his believing descendants, not his natural descendants alone, but his natural and believing descendants. But people say, well, I'm not a Jew, so why should I care about that? Look, if God can break an unconditional covenant with the Jewish people, what keeps him from doing that with us? How do we know when we get to heaven, God doesn't say, well, you know, I told you you'd be saved by grace, but I've decided to change the rules. We're going to judge you by your works. What keeps him from doing that? It's God's nature. He cannot break a covenant he has made. He said in Hebrews 7, 25, he is able to save forever those who trust in Christ. In John 10, Jesus said, uh, no man shall pluck out of my hands those whom the Father has given to me. And how do we know he's going to come back again? Because he promised I'm coming back again. He said, I go to prepare a place for you, John 14. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to take you unto myself. Our faith in the second coming of Christ is just as sure as Jesus himself. What can we anticipate in that second coming as we look to the future with some trepidation, seeing how things are unfolding here at home and around the world? As we look to that promise being fulfilled, what what might we expect? I mean, obviously, the scriptures tell us some details about what that event will uh, involve in terms of Jesus appearing. But to encourage our hearts and anticipation of that return, what can we expect? Why is Jesus coming back? Well, I think it's important to distinguish between two events that both 
involve the coming or the appearance of the Lord, but they're two distinct events. And I have a chapter in my book, Are We Living in the End Times, about what the difference is between the rapture and the second coming. The next event on God's prophetic timeline is the rapture. The word means to snatch away. The rapture of the church is described in detail in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And this is Paul said, all Christians shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. The rapture is Christians being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Only believers will see him at that point. But seven years later is the second coming when Christ will return not to heaven, but he will return to the earth, the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14, and he will return with believers at that point. We'll be with him in heaven, and he will return, and we'll return with him to earth. And Zechariah 14 says, everyone will see him in the world. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is to the glory of God. So the next event we, if we're Christians, are going to experience will either be our death and our immediate going to be with the Lord, or it will be the rapture of the church when in a moment we're here on earth, in the next instant, in a twinkling of an eye, we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So I guess the the practical question would be, how do I prepare for the end times, the events that are unfolding as we anticipate what you've just described in our future? How do we prepare for this uh, this season that's coming? Well, I think the most important preparation we can make uh, for the end times is to make sure we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what becoming a Christian is all about. It's saying to God, God, I know I have failed you. I can't approach you on the basis of my good works. I don't, I'm not good enough to make it into heaven. I need the righteousness of Christ. And when we trust in Jesus, believing he died for our sins, God wraps us in the righteousness, the perfection of his son. You know the hymn well, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. There are other things we can do to get ready, but that's the most basic thing. And Georgine, if I could just say this uh, as a way of kind of closing out, some people may say, well, I don't care about the end times. Who knows? That may be a thousand years away. Years ago, when I first started appearing on Fox News, uh, one of my best friends was the late Alan Combs. He was the resident liberal at Fox News. He was Jewish, but he would always give me a chance to share the gospel on his program. And one night he said, Pastor, do you believe you'll live to see Jesus return to earth one day? And I said, I don't know, Alan, but it really doesn't make any difference. He said, what do you mean it doesn't make any difference? I said, well, I'm 58 years old. And in the next 30 years, one of two things is probably going to happen. Either Christ is coming or I'm going, but the end is near for me and it's near for you as well. And the best thing to do is make sure we're ready. And that's what I would say to your audience. The end times are interesting. I don't think you can understand the Bible without understanding Bible prophecy. But in the end, the end is coming soon for all of us. And the most important thing is to make sure we're ready. Amen. Well, where can people buy a copy of Are We Living in the End Times and connect with you online? Well, the book is available at Amazon.com right now. It's been the number one new release on Bible prophecy for the last few weeks. And so that's the easiest way to get it. Uh, People can go to our website, 
for Pathway to Victory. It's ptv.org, and they can download all of the messages, audio and video, for free of charge for this series, Are We Living in the End Times? Well, Dr. Jeffress, I, I know you're a a busy pastor and leader and teacher and writer. I thank you so much for taking time once again to be with us. Well, we've been doing this for years, Georgine, and I always appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Thank you so much. And Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Again, Dr. Robert Jeffress is the author most recently of Are We Living in the End Times? The book is published by Baker Books. We're going to take a quick break. If you're listening from Seattle, have a great evening. I hope you'll join us here again tomorrow at four. In Portland, we'll continue with some of the day's headlines and a great resolution for 2024. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Portland-only segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, there have been at least 115 attacks on our forces in Iraq and Syria and elsewhere since the 17th of October. The U.S. military launched uh, airstrikes last week, I should say, against an Islamic terrorist group in Iraq after a Christmas trade drone strike. Uh, injured three American warriors, one of them critically. Well, as of the Daily Wire, in response to the attacks, the U.S. conducted airstrikes against multiple facilities used um, by the Kataib Hezbollah, an Iranian-backed terrorist group and affiliated groups in Iraq late on Monday night, U.S. Central Command said in a statement. Early assessment indicate that these U.S. airstrikes destroyed the targeted facilities and likely killed a number of Hezbollah militants, the statement said. There are no indications that any civilian lives were affected. U.S. military will continue to evaluate the effectiveness of these strikes. The president's weakness as commander-in-chief has been provocative. Perhaps he's finally getting the message. We'll continue to follow that developing story. Well, Christianity Today is defending preferred pronouns. The once flagship publication for evangelicals founded by the late Billy Graham is continuing its leftward drift away from biblically sound doctrine. The publication effectively took the side of two now former employees of Houghton University who were fired after they defied the Wesleyan school's directives against including preferred pronouns with their email signatures. Rather than recognizing that and upholding the sound and fundamentally Christian and biblically a biblical perspective that God created humanity as male and female, they uh, that there is no such thing as transgender. They sought to instead blur the issue. Well, in a Christianity Today article, uh, Carla Bettis, uh, she argues using others requested pronouns can demonstrate that Christians care for them, whether or not they hold the same positions on questions around gender and sexuality. She adds, one can believe in the inherent truths of maleness and femaleness and also that God loves and cares for every person, end quote. However, critics wonder how affirming someone's delusion is showing love, or to put it another way, how does lying to someone comport with the ninth commandment against bearing false witness against your neighbor? Well, going against the globalist climate agenda, the climate change agenda has effectively cost a former Washington state employee his job. Scott Smith was a transportation planner for the Washington State Department of Transportation and was turned into a whistleblower. Last year, he left the post he had served at for more than five years after he was essentially forced out by Democrat Governor Jay Inslee's administration for refusing, excuse me, to lie about the impact Inslee's Climate Commitment Act would have on gas prices. Smith, who has served as an economist for over 35 years, calculated that the legislation would negatively affect prices at the pump, increasing them by 45 to 50 cents per gallon. This is what happens when an agenda trumps truth. 
Well, an Obama-appointed judge ruled in favor of Republicans in Georgia, and President Biden scolded the media for negative coverage of the economy. He demanded start reporting it the right way. In other words, I wait. Prosecutors say Sam Bankman-Fried will not face a second trial, and illegal immigrants from Texas are taking trains into New York City after Eric Adams restricted bus travel. Well, beginning this week, illegal immigrants will qualify for free health care in California, and Libs of TikTok says their account was suspended by Facebook. The Washington Post is shedding hundreds of staff from its payroll, according to The Federalist. And a second American hostage has been confirmed dead one week after her husband died in Hamas captivity. Another freed Israeli hostage shared harrowing details about captivity in Gaza. Israel killed uh, or perhaps killed a or perhaps the Hamas commander who helped lead the October 7th attacks. Uh, Meanwhile, Israel is withdrawing thousands of troops from Gaza. A Christmas Eve attack in Nigeria left at least 140 people dead and homes burned. California schools are pushing kids to watch films on transgenderism that showcase puberty blockers. A judge blocked an Iowa law keeping sexually explicit books out of schools. And the nation's capital recorded more homicides in 2023 than any year since 1997. More EVs, electric vehicles, lost tax credits, including Tesla, Nissan, GM vehicles. And 22 states just increased their minimum wage. The Pentagon hopes to uh, its grim recruiting numbers will rebound in 2024. And former President Obama topped a list of overrated political figures, while President Coolidge made the list as most underrated. Well, New York wants to join Colorado, Maine, in banning uh, Trump from their ballot. Uh, It was noted that Maine's Trump deranged Secretary of State Shenna Bellows had kicked the once and perhaps future president off that state's primary ballot for insurrection. And um, many are calling the move a bizarre and desperate act of individual tyranny. Well, Colorado's Supreme Court had similarly removed Trump from the ballot and a legal decision that's sure to be overturned by the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court. But perhaps we were premature in dismissing the appeal as a stunt in neighboring New York. Um, they want to do the same. There's uh, there, as National Review reports, a New York City councilman is urging the state's Board of Elections to disqualify Trump from the state's 2024 primary and general election ballots for the same Civil War era insurrection claim. Uh, Again, that is an ongoing process, says Colorado's GOP lawyers uh, rightly warn, unless the Court's decision is overturned. Any voter will have the power to sue to disqualify any political candidate. This will not only distort the 2024 presidential election, but will also mire courts henceforth in political controversies over nebulous accusations of insurrection, for which, by the way, Trump was never charged or found guilty. Well, the Hollywood box office numbers are in for 2023, and for the first time since 2015, Disney saw Universal take over the top spot for highest-grossing films of the year. And while both studios raked in over $4 billion in global sales, it was the first time since 2014, excluding the pandemic years of 2020 and 21, that Disney failed to have a single movie cross the $1 billion threshold. Also, it was the first time in years that Disney failed to have a movie in the top three grossing films. Disney's slide has been illustrated by a a um, string of movie failures like the Marvels and Wish. But the bigger lesson is that Disney's decision to lean into woke narratives has not paid off. 
While electric vehicle sales climbed last year, they still accounted for just 9% of total new vehicles sold in 2023. However, thanks to new federal rules on battery sourcing going into effect on Monday this past, EV sales will likely struggle as a majority of EVs currently on the market fail to meet the new requirements for federal tax credits. Last year, 43 EV models qualified for the federal tax credits of up to $7,500. So far in 2024, only 19 EV models qualify for the tax credit. The list of automakers whose uh, cars now fail to qualify for the tax credit includes Nissan, Tesla, GM, VW, and Ford. Thanks to the 2022 Inflation Reduction Act, which requires an EV to be assembled in the U.S. to qualify for a tax credit, roughly 70% of current EVs on the market now fail to qualify. While the Republican majority in the House of Representatives will decline to just two seats after the departure of Representative Republican Representative Bill Johnson of Ohio, whose resignation was announced on Tuesday. The Biden administration has asked the Supreme Court to approve cutting the Texas border razor wire. And New York Times published an op-ed by the Hamas mayor of Gaza and gets blasted for it. Senator Bob Menendez has been hit with new allegations involving bribes and a Qatari uh, investment deal. U.S. office buildings are facing $117 billion debt time bomb. China is ramping up its nuclear energy as the U.S. turns to wind and solar. Wonder who will win that fight. At least 103 were killed in an Iran terrorist attack at an event honoring the general taken out of in a U.S. drone strike, Tehran says. And a court rules that the federal government cannot force Texas hospitals to carry out abortions. A man who's been arrested after breaking into the Colorado Supreme Court and opening fire and a blatantly unconstitutional California law banning concealed carry goes into effect. USA Boxing will allow men to fight women with the new transgender guidelines. Now think about that for a moment. A contact sport, men boxing women. Oh my. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back momentarily to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the New York lawmaker is targeting a Chick-fil-A. The Democrat New York state lawmaker Tony Simone recently introduced a bill dubbed the Rest Stop Restaurant Act which would require all food and beverage service companies that contract with the state to remain open seven days a week. According to Simone's legislation, publicly owned service areas should use their space maximally to benefit the public, allowing retail space to go unused one seventh of the week or more is a disservice and unnecessarily inconveniences travelers who rely on these service areas. Well, Simone obviously said, His obvious target is the Christian-owned Chick-fil-A, which famously closes all its restaurants on Sundays. Simone clearly has little concern for adhering to the First Amendment and its protection of religious liberty. Furthermore, Simone's argument that the state is funding these restaurants is also entirely false. Far from costing New York taxpayers, Chick-fil-A does uh, the opposite as it produces revenue for the Empire State. Either Simone holds bigotry against Christianity or he's such a huge fan of the fast food chain's crispy chicken sandwich that he can't stand to go a single day without enjoying one. Well, on this day in history, 1521, Martin Luther is excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church by Pope Leo X. 1777, General George Washington's army routes the British in the Battle of Princeton, New Jersey. 1938, 
The March of Dimes campaign to fight polio is established by President Franklin Roosevelt, who himself has been afflicted with the crippling disease. 1958, the first eight members of the newly formed U.S. Commission on Civil Rights holds their first meeting at the White House. 1961, President Dwight Eisenhower, he announces the United States is formally terminating diplomatic and consular relations with Cuba. 1977, Apple Computer is incorporated in California, Cupertino, by Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, and Mike Marculo, Jr. 1993, President George Herbert Walker Bush and Russian President Boris Yeltsin signed the START II Missile Reduction Treaty in Moscow. However, the agreement ultimately would fall apart. 2008, Illinois Senator Barack Obama wins Democratic caucuses in Iowa, while Mike Huckabee wins the Republican caucuses. 2013, students from Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, reconvene at a different building in the town of Monroe about three weeks after the massacre that had claimed the lives of 20 first graders and six educators. 2014, the Secretive Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court rules against the National Security Agency that they could keep collecting every American's telephone records every day. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, President Trump signs an executive order disbanding the controversial voter fraud commission he had set up to investigate the 2016 presidential election after alleging that voter fraud cost him the popular vote. The White House blames the decision to end the panel on more than a dozen states that refused to cooperate. Well, it's no secret that Americans today are collectively losing their faith in our cultural and government institutions. We previously noted polling data indicating that an increasingly political polarization has been spreading across the country, characterized by the bluing and reddening of the states. People move away from governments they don't trust. One of the primary drivers of migration in America today is politics. As states like California and New York increasingly embrace hard left policies, a growing number of conservative residents from those states have opted to move to greener pastures in states like Texas, Florida, and Tennessee, but not just conservatives. As a result, this migration is allowed for and even encouraged the broadening gap in the political polarization between between the states. Against this backdrop, Gallup has observed four distinct big picture trends becoming more apparent across the nation. These four trends outlined by Gallup senior science scientist rather Frank Newport are declining public trust in American institutions, declining sexual morality, declining religious affiliation and growing political polarization. Not only have all of these trends been developing for years, they are all Interrelated. As Newport observes, we can look at these shifts in American public opinion as representing a report card on how America is doing these days. The people's answer, not well. Well, his assessment leads him to ask a fundamentally important question. As these normal societies uh, are these normal societal growing pains or is the U.S. experiencing a significant cultural crisis that is increasingly defined by national cynicism? If the latter is the case, it's difficult to see how the growing divergence in American identity will be bridged. Trust has fallen in America's institutions in part because too much trust has been afforded to them in the first place. Just as a narrow footbridge is ill-designed for a car, so too America's institutions will never were never intended to uphold the totality of our cultural and individual identities. And while Gallup correctly notes the negative impact of the declining role of religion in America's uh, Americans' lives, 
There doesn't seem to be a true appreciation for the significance of this decline. Indeed, it is from this one foundation, religious liberty under the Judeo-Christian worldview, that our great nation was birthed. America rightly traces its history back to the Mayflower and those bold and brave pilgrims who came to the to New World seeking to build a world where religious liberty flourished. Well, without that foundation of a Judeo-Christian worldview, there would never have been an America. There never would have been a constitution. There never would have been the embrace of equal value for every individual citizen under the law, although it took us a while to get there. As John Adams presciently put it, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other, end quote. It also comes as no surprise that with the erosion of Americans' Christian religious faith comes the erosion of Americans' sexual ethics. With the loss of faith in God, who is the ultimate sustainer of life and happiness, that vacuum is quickly being filled with idols. Given this reality, it comes as little surprise that sexual deviancy has not only been embraced by the broader public as permissible, but is increasingly viewed as normal and even celebrated as virtuous. If there's no creator or objective standard, then anything goes. Similarly, a loss of trust in America's institutions is ironically tied to that cultural loss of religious faith as well. With fewer people looking to God as the ultimate source for solving their myriad problems they face, people are instead turning to institutions like the government for salvation. Once again, however, that only affords greater polarization. If people view government as the only means to better themselves, then government becomes ultimate and the stakes grow even higher with each election cycle. Out of this comes intense tribalism, wherein tribal identity takes precedence over everything else. Under these conditions, the foundational principle view of the equality of every individual is lost to a chaotic sea of identity politics. Americans are facing a time eerily similar to that of the Israelites of old, as described in the Old Testament book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If there is no recognition of a uniting value system and a commitment to a common culture, then all that's left is a bunch of individuals judging everything and everyone as if they themselves were God. And the inevitable result is a fracturing and disintegrating of the nation, which we are witnessing. Gary Bauer wrote a piece uh, just, um, well, I guess today on the great resolution anticipating what 2023 looked like and what 2024 should be. He says 2024 is just beginning, but there are warning signs everywhere that it will be a very tumultuous year. North Korea is threatening nuclear war. The Iranians are sending their warships into the Red Sea, threatening U.S. naval vessels. Communist China is threatening to seize Taiwan. And America remains deeply divided politically, culturally and morally, hoping for Compromise on fundamental issues is a vain hope. One side will win. For the sake of America's future, hopefully it will be uh, those uh, who believe that God is the author of and the source of our liberty. In the middle of all these crises over the last three years, Joe Biden has spent more time on vacation than any previous modern president. He seems mentally and physically challenged, as anyone his age would be. With all that in mind, I was encouraged, he writes, by a new poll regarding 2024 New Year's resolutions. It seemed that a whole lot of Americans plan to take their faith more seriously in the years ahead, the year ahead. Now, there is there's one resolution we should all do our best to keep. Uh, there's some. Um, 
There's uh, no sure rock in times of trouble, trouble rather, greater than the God of the Bible. He is our foundation. His word tells us over and over again, fear not because I am with you. The best chance of America surviving the stormy seas of 2024 may very well depend on whether millions of our fellow citizens keep the resolution that they have made to turn their hearts back toward God. And there are other things that we can do as well. Do whatever you can to support and heal the wounds in your own family. As parents and grandparents, make a resolution to spend more time bringing up your children and grandchildren in the ways you want them to go. Become a more active Christian citizen. It's clear from recent elections that many Christian conservatives have dropped out. Why would anyone concerned about values issues drop out when so much evil is loose in our country? With your continued support and God's blessing, perhaps this year could be much better than anyone anticipates and we'll just have to wait and see well we are out of time i do want to thank james blend for producing dave king for engineering and thank you for making the georgine rice show part of your day in addition to covering the day's events we'll also feature billy graham's new year special so i hope you'll join us have a great night thanks for listening to the georgine rice show podcast if you'd like more information on today's guests please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on facebook And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.